0: This is season one of the Constitutional Commons podcast. This season is called the Founders of the Constitution. Your host, Rob Nadelson, is a nationally known constitutional scholar and author whose research into the history and legal meaning of the Constitution has been cited repeatedly at the U.S. Supreme Court by both parties and by individual justices. In this podcast, you will learn about the lives of leading founders and their unique contributions to the Constitution.
1: Hi, I'm Rob Nadelson and welcome to part 10 of the Founders in the Constitution series, Gouverneur Morris. Gouverneur Morris was a chick magnet. He was tall, handsome, witty, and rich. Even scalding damage to his right arm, loss of his lower leg in a traffic accident, and reliance on a wooden prosthesis for walking didn't impair his success with women. Part of his attractiveness to women seems to have been a sincere regard for them. He was to express this regard in the final draft of the Constitution. Morris was born on January 30, 1752 on the family estate of Morrisania in what is now the New York City borough of the Bronx. His father, grandfather, and uncle Had held a collection of important colonial offices. He received his unusual first name from his mother, who was born Sarah Gouverneur. Sarah was of French Huguenot or Protestant stock, and her son received his education, including an excellent grounding in the French language, at a Huguenot school in New Rochelle, New York. Judging by his frequent classical references, Gouverneur also learned Latin well. One of his recurrent expressions came from the metamorphoses of the Roman poet Ovid, Medio tutissimus ibis. Roughly translated, Medio tutissimus ibis means you're safest if you go down the middle. In 1768, he earned his bachelor's degree from King's College, which is now Columbia University. As was true of Alexander Hamilton, he was converted there to the colonial cause against Britain. After college, he clerked in the office of a leading New York City attorney and was admitted to the bar. In 1775, he was elected to the New York Provincial Congress. This was the assembly charged with erecting a government for for New York divorced from British influence. As a member of the New York Provincial Congress, The young man assisted in writing his state's first constitution. In May 1776, the New York legislature elected him to the Second Continental Congress, then sitting in Philadelphia. He didn't arrive until October, but then served about two years. After leaving Congress, he continued to reside and practice law, but now in Philadelphia. Robert Morris, no relation, was Congress's superintendent of finance, and in 1781, he made Gouverneur his assistant. In early 1787, the, Philadelphia legis- the Pennsylvania legislature included both Morris's among its commissioners, or delegates, to the Constitutional Convention. On the founding era political spectrum discussed in the first installment of this series, Gouverneur Morris was a high nationalist. He held positions similar to those of Alexander Hamilton, although somewhat less extreme. In Morris's view, the central government should enjoy almost unlimited power over the states. It should contain a single chief executive elected indirectly for life, with power to appoint national officers, and an absolute veto over legislation. The Constitution should also feature a bicameral legislature with both houses apportioned according to measures of wealth and population. Morris believed the lower house should be elected by the people, but that an aristocracy, either of birth or merit, was inevitable, and that aristocracy should be represented by the Senate. Senators should, in his view, be appointed by the executive for life. They should have authority to initiate tax bills. They should also be eligible for executive office, thus replicating a British practice, that is, people in the legislature serving in executive office, which most Americans derided as corruption. Morris thought a ban on ex post facto laws, that is, retroactive criminal laws, was unnecessary, and he favored ratification of the Constitution by a single national convention instead of by conventions held in the separate states. Madison would have subordinated new western states to their eastern brethren. He wanted the government to retain huge tracts of western land. This would give the government permanent sources of revenue and some control over the people of the West. Morris's fellow commissioners at the convention firmly rejected most of his high nationalist ideas. In later years, his vision of vast federal landholding did materialize, but only in defiance of the Constitution as actually written. Hamilton and Morris reacted very differently to their colleagues' rejection of high nationalism. Hamilton went missing for six weeks and then moderated his participation. But Morris remained at the Constitutional Convention for the entire time, and participated in very useful ways. For example, he was a major architect of the presidential election system. He made the motions that led to several other provisions, including the Suspension Clause, Article 1, Section 9, Clause 2, which has to do with habeas corpus, the Full Faith and Credit Clause, Article 4, Section 1, and the Property Clause. Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2. As the proceedings wore on, Morris became more protective of the states. He opposed a congressional veto over state laws, and he advocated equal representation of the states in the Senate. Sometimes he changed his views, as when he admitted that the president should be impeachable after previously arguing the contrary. Morris spoke more than any other delegate. His wit and humor made his colleagues' tasks easier. Here's an illustration. To emphasize that dependent people tend to vote for those on whom they are dependent, he observed, quote, In religion, the creature is apt to forget its creator. It is otherwise in political affairs, end quote. On the subject of slavery, this conservative New Yorker turned Pennsylvanian was a radical. On August 8, 1787, he launched a furious attack on slavery on the floor of the convention. Here is part of James Madison's report of his speech. Quote, he never would concur in upholding domestic slavery. It was a nefarious institution. It was the curse of heaven on the states where it prevailed. Compare the free regions of the middle states, where a rich and noble cultivation marks the prosperity and happiness of the people, with the misery and poverty which overspread the barren wastes of Virginia, Maryland, and other states having slaves. Proceed southwardly and every step you take through the great regions of slaves prevents a, presents a desert, increasing with an increasing proportion of these wretched beings. Upon what principle is it that slaves should be computed in the representation? Are they men? Then make them citizens and let them vote. The admissions of slaves into the representation comes to this, that the inhabitant of Georgia and South Carolina who goes to the coast of Africa and in defiance of the most sacred laws of humanity, tears away his fellow creatures from their dearest connections and damns them to the most cruel bondages, that person shall have more votes in a government instituted for protection of the rights of mankind than the citizen of Pennsylvania or New Jersey who views with laudable horror so nefarious a practice." He would sooner submit himself to a tax for paying for emancipation of all the Negroes in the United States than saddle posterity with such a constitution, end quote. As explained in the seventh essay in this series, the convention adopted resolutions outlying a constitution and then turned those resolutions over to a five-man committee of detail to prepare a first draft. Chairing that committee was John Rutledge of South Carolina, one of the convention's great facilitators. After refining the draft, the convention elected a five-man Committee of Style and Arrangement to prepare a semi-final version. Chairing the committee was another of the convention's great facilitators, William Samuel Johnson of Connecticut. The other four were Hamilton, Madison, Rufus King of Massachusetts, and Gouverneur Morris. These five were among the most talented members of a very talented gathering. The committee delegated the actual drafting to Morris. As Madison later remarked, a better choice could not have been made. In an earlier installment in this series, I described how the convention rendered the Constitution gender gender neutral, so women could participate in national politics if their state so decided as New Jersey already had. Morris completed this process by eliminating the sole remaining reference to men in the draft and employing only the terms persons and inhabitants throughout the Constitution's final draft. In preparing the final draft, Morris enlisted his biblical education, his classical language tra- training, and his English la- language eloquence. In a a 2021 essay in this series, I explained how Morris used poetic meter, rhyme, and semi-rhyme in composing the preamble. But his talent for elegance and symbolism is displayed throughout the instrument. The preamble's list of states was altered to we the people of the United States. 23 articles were reduced to the biblical number of seven To make the document easier to use, articles were divided into sections and clauses. What many had considered four branches of government, Senate, House, President, and Judiciary, became the New Testament three. The words supreme law of the several states became supreme law of the land, a phrase that echoed Magna Carta. The legislature became the Congress. Morris capitalized most nouns giving the document the archaic air that conveys majesty. Morris didn't play a significant role in the Constitution's ratification. He returned to his business, and in furtherance of that business, departed for France in late 1788. He stayed in France for a decade, circulating at the highest levels of society. President George Washington designated him as America's Minister Plenipotentiary, in 1792, and he served in that capacity for two years. He also carried on a love affair with a novelist named Adelaide or Adèle de Flau, who had been the mistress of the famous French foreign minister Talleyrand. After returning to America in 1798, he served in the U.S. Senate from 1800 to 1802. In 1809, he finally married at the age of 57. His wife was the 35-year-old widow, Anne Carrie Randolph, a cousin of Thomas Jefferson's wife, Martha. The marriage was happy and it produced one son. However, it lasted only until November 6, 1816, when Morris died of complications from a urinary obstruction. Morris's contributions to the Constitution were limited to his convention role. His colleagues rejected his high nationalist philosophy but he continued to participate. He authored several of the Constitution's clauses. His humor helped keep the proceedings going. And most importantly, his inspired drafting produced a prodigy, a fairly precise legal document that was also beautifully written. Indeed, so beautifully written that some in later generations falsely assumed it could not be very precise. Through his eloquence, Morris converted a mere legal instrument into one of the most memorable documents in the history of the world. I'm Rob Nadelson, and thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode from the series, The Founders of the Constitution. To make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to like this in your podcast app and subscribe to be notified every time a new episode is released. For more information about the U.S. Constitution and this series, head over to thinkfreedom.org. Thanks for listening.